You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. Here's Nate. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we really come to the heart of this particular letter from Paul the Apostle to the new church in Thessalonica. He says in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken, verse 2, in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. As I've told you, in chapter 1, Paul was encouraging the Thessalonian church. They were living in the midst of persecution and he encouraged them about their persecution and the evidence of their faith and conversion in that they were being persecuted and the ultimate destiny for them as the church, but also for those who were persecuting them. Paul encouraged the church in chapter 1. In chapter 3, Paul is going to give a word of correction to those who had ceased working in response to some of the false teaching that had begun to permeate their city. But in chapter 2, Paul instructs the Thessalonian church specifically about this letter or about this concern of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ being, he says in verse 1, gathered together to him and not to be shaken or troubled uh, with a spirit, a spoken word or letter, seeming to be from Paul to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, it's important to remember a couple of things at the outset of this chapter. Number one, it's good to remember that there are good believers on all sides of this particular doctrine and issue, many different vantage points and viewpoints. Really, all of them, in the end, uh, end with the kingdom of Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. And to that, we are exceedingly glad. Another thing, of course, to remember is that Second Thessalonians is the second for a reason. Paul had previously written to the Thessalonian church. And some of the issues that he'd uh, talked about in 1 Thessalonians were becoming questioned by the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul had to write 2 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 especially, Paul said to them in verse 14 and 15 that he had a word from the Lord for them. Uh, they had become concerned about those who had died in their church before Jesus had visibly and physically returned. And so their concern, they were concerned about these people who had previously died. They were worried that they wouldn't have a seat at the table with the Lord for all of eternity. And so Paul used a phrase there in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he had a word from the Lord for them. This indicated that Paul was going to introduce a new level of teaching to the Thessalonian church 
that they had not yet heard that had come from the Lord that would provide the furthest clarity on the subject to date. It was an especially emphasized authoritative command from Jesus for the Thessalonian church and of course for us. And in that word from the Lord, what he dealt with was the catching away of the church to be with Christ eternally. And he had said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. He said, step one will look like this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Step two, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Step three, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And step four, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so Paul told them then to encourage one another with these words, the coming rapture of the church. And of course, the timeline of the rapture is often uh, debated. Uh, but Paul was encouraging them with this concept and saying, listen, the Lord is going to call you home to be with him, but he's not going to forget those who have previously died in the faith. Now, after Paul gave that teaching there in 1 Thessalonians 4, he followed it up with an additional teaching. And at the close of that teaching, he told them also to encourage and edify and build one another up as a result of these words. In 1 Thessalonians 5, that additional teaching dealt with a subject called the day of the Lord. You have first in chapter 4, the rapture of the church, and then the day of the Lord in uh, chapter 5. And apparently some had come to Thessalonica by uh, spirit, he says there in verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, which indicates maybe they claimed that they were prophesying. Some had come with spoken word, indicating that perhaps they were giving a teaching. And some had even said that they had received letters from Paul himself. These were mere forgeries, though, claiming that the day of the Lord has come. 1 Thessalonians 5, after Paul had taught about the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 5 dealt with this subject called the day of the Lord. And when you read it there in 1 Thessalonians 5, and then, of course, when you read of the day of the Lord in the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testament, you come away with a few conclusions. One major conclusion that you come away with is that it is a day that any sane person would want to avoid. It's a time of great wrath, a time of great difficulty. It's more than just a 24-hour period of time, but more of a season. If that day is God's day, this would be man's day. Isaiah mentions it in Isaiah 13 and in other places. Peter mentions it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Probably the uh, most... Uh, you know, the, the briefest statement on the subject, he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And I think in one sense, Peter is recording the final moment of the long season called the day of the Lord. It's going to culminate in the destruction 
of the creation that we know and uh, usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Generally, in the Bible, it's referred to as a day of wrath. All the nations of the earth are involved. Israel is specifically involved. Elijah appears to be involved. A worldwide rebellion seems to be involved. A figure called the Antichrist seems to be involved. Dramatic signs in heaven seem to be involved. I'm referencing many different biblical passages as I talk about these things, just to sort of put it in a nutshell to say that this is a future period of time in which God will be at work in world affairs more directly and dramatically than he has been since the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a very intense time. And the Thessalonians were going through intense persecution and had come to believe, some of them, that they were actually in the day of the Lord. Perhaps depressed that they had missed the rapture of the church. This wasn't news that caused them to become excited about the potential of Jesus' return. They were depressed that they were actually in the day of the Lord. And so Paul writes to them to say, hey, listen, don't worry, don't be shaken. Uh, don't be concerned. The day of the Lord has not yet come. I should point out there in verse 1 that he references the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. He separates them as two separate events. And I believe personally that they are two separate events at uh, the end end of one major event, a seven-year period of tribulation. Uh, the beginning of it will be signified by the rapture of the church and the end of it signified by the second coming of Christ. And Paul referenced that, our being gathered together and the coming of our Lord. He says in verse 3, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so Paul is now going to talk to them of a few things that will be present during that great and terrible day of the Lord. The first thing that he holds out is he says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, of course, the question that we would ask is, what is this rebellion that Paul is referencing? Well, in general, this is usually received as some kind of rejection of God. The question is, will it be a general worldwide rejection of God? Or will it be a specific rejection of God amongst those who previously declared their allegiance to God. And uh, there are good people on both sides of that question. Paul the Apostle, for his part, seemed to predict both in First and Second Timothy. He talked about a time when people would heap up teachers for themselves and uh, would no longer endure sound doctrine, uh, seeming to indicate a backsliding of those who professed the name of Christ in name devoted to him, but obviously not truly born again in heart. 
but he also seems to prophesy of uh, the world growing in general darker and darker and darker in the age to come. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, both come to pass and if both are being referenced here with this rebellion, unless the rebellion, verse 3, comes uh, first. And I don't know if in our age we're beginning to see the uh, first signs of that rebellion. I think it's important to notice because some people uh, in the church think of the end times as being such a dark season or moment in man's history, uh, so, uh, you know, depraved and all of that, that there is no possibility of a great revival. And I believe that that worldwide rebellion can come and simultaneously exist with additionally a great revival from the Holy Spirit. When you read the book of Revelation, the way that I read the book of Revelation is that in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, you're covering one seven-year period uh, that we refer to as the tribulation. And during that seven-year period, it appears that there will be great rebellion, but additionally that many people, so as they cannot be numbered, will actually give their lives to the Lord. So great revival mixed with great apostasy. And so he says there in verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians 2, this day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, I'm a fan of the rapture. There are some who believe that the word rebellion there in verse 3, which can be translated departure, some believe that it should be translated departure, uh, indicating the rapture of the church. And uh, good people uh, hold that view. Uh, however, uh, the word departure uh, is still a word that doesn't just mean to leave at some point. It implies something that is personally decided upon and is also has a negative connotation. It seems to be a sinful decision. And of course, the rapture is not something that we decide. Uh, it's the Lord's uh, will and the Lord's doing. And it's also not something that is sinful. So that's probably not the right interpretation of this word. Rebellion seems to be the right way to phrase it. He also says there in verse 3 that, yes, the rebellion will come first, but also notice this, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, of course, we would ask this question, who is this man of lawlessness who Paul says carries an additional title, the son of destruction or the son of perdition. So Paul is saying this figure had not yet come. And so you are not yet in the day of the Lord. But who is this particular man? Now, traditionally, over uh, the thousands of years of the church, uh, there have been many who have saw, saw this figure, the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction, as not a specific man, but a system or an office. Protestants have uh, been quick to 
declare this to be uh, the system or the office of the Pope or something like that. Uh, but there, there's no real reason why this man of lawlessness, son of destruction, should not be seen as a specific, singular, actual man. Daniel seems to allude to that all the way back in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel received a prophecy from the angel concerning a 490-year period of time in which God would deal with the nation of Israel. After 483 years of that prophecy had passed, which seems to me to be fulfilled from the time that Artaxerxes told Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, 483 years fast forward seems to be the time that Jesus is revealed in Jerusalem. There's one final seven-year period. And concerning that, this is what Daniel records. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That seems to speak of the crucifixion of Christ. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This would seem to be 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he, who, who, who is this he in Daniel 9.27? Well, he'd already referred to the people of the prince who is to come. This prince who is to come will eventually come and, verse 27, make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week or half of the seven, the final seven-year period, he shall put an end to sacrifices and offerings and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It appears that there is this singular figure, according to the prophecy Daniel received, who is the prince who is to come, perhaps of Roman descent, and he'll make a covenant for a one seven-year period, and he'll go in and make an end to sacrifice and offerings and uh, offer the abominations of desolation. And so it appears that it's a specific figure that uh, Daniel is dealing with, a man of lawlessness, like Paul said, the son of destruction. Jesus echoed this same statement in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, when he said, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, notice the personal pronoun, he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea, Jesus said, flee to the mountains. So this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, seems to be not just a system, but a person. You know, I believe that this man will establish, like Daniel received a prophecy concerning, establish a covenant with the people of Israel, with the world, for a seven-year period of time. Perhaps as a part of that peace treaty, he will rebuild a Jewish temple and at the three and a half year mark of his treaty, will go into that temple and demand to be worshipped as God. That seems to be what Paul alludes to in Second Thessalonians 2, the next verse, verse 4. This man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, he says, 
who opposes verse 4 and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So he will show up actually in the temple of God. Now, obviously, in our modern era, there is no temple there in Jerusalem. And in order for this particular prophecy to be fulfilled, the temple would have to be reconstructed there in Jerusalem. And it does appear that there were some early church fathers who, even after the destruction of the temple that existed during the days of the early church and the time of Christ, even after that temple was destroyed, there were early church fathers who were waiting for a antichrist who would actually sit in the temple at Jerusalem, anticipating a uh, reconstructed temple there in God's city, which would make sense because the final seven-year period is a time also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, God placing his attention on the nation of Israel once again. And uh, Caligula had actually already attempted this at one point. So there's historical precedence for the Thessalonians as they hear Paul saying that this man of sin is going to go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if the building of this temple is a part of that seven-year peace treaty. Any man who is able to come up with a plan to allow Muslims and Jews to coexist on the Temple Mount, which it does appear there would be, would be room for a Jewish temple there if some kind of wall was constructed. Any figure who would be able to uh, establish that kind of peace in Jerusalem would be heralded as a great savior. And so this man will actually go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God. John records his vision of what this would look like, at least from the heavenly perspective. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 5 through 8, the beast uh, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And so this word of blasphemy proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He had given this teaching to the Thessalonian church. And you know, verse 6, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Apparently, the Thessalonians knew what was restraining the Antichrist from coming. Now, in verse 7, it gets even clearer. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
So in verse 6, he says, you know what is restraining him now. But in verse 7, he clarifies and says, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And so it appears that the it that is restraining is the he who is restraining in verse 7. And there have been various guesses as to who is restraining this man of sin from coming and this mystery of lawlessness from pervading over the earth. Various guesses. But it seems that only the Holy Spirit of God could be the person with a sufficient supernatural power to actually restrain the man of sin and the mystery of lawlessness that is connected with him. But Paul says in verse 7, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We might not be seeing it in the same kind of way that they will see it during the day of the Lord, but we're seeing it in a strong sense. And it's mysterious, the pull of sinfulness and lawlessness that's in this world. If you're a believer, it just is so astounding. You love the Lord. You're so thankful for what he's done for you. It makes so much sense to you that there is a God in heaven who created us, that there was a fall that ruined us, and that there was a Savior who came for us and that he rose from the dead offering forgiveness and reconciliation unto God. We've experienced such great peace. We've experienced such great friendship with God. We know the reality of the Lord as we find him in his word, but personally as well in our hearts. But there is this mysterious spirit of lawlessness that pervades. Even when we see the pain that crime and sex trafficking and substance abuse and shattered families cause, we still turn to every one of them as a people. It's a mystery to us as to how these things continue to pervade. So in verse 8, Paul says, and then the lawless one, after the Holy Spirit is taken away, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is a reference to the second coming of Christ. He'll kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, cast him into the lake of fire eternally. Uh, and this is a reference, of course, to the coming of Christ. The coming of the lawless one, verse 9, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So powerful yet satanic. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. Notice that. Satanically inspired, but those who were deceived and were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That was their stance. We hate the truth. We do not love it. We do not want to be saved by that truth. We hate it. We reject it. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So these people, they reject the truth, 
hate the truth, refuse to love the truth, but then God gives them a strong delusion to firm up the decision that they made. Just like God had done with Pharaoh in the past and through parables in the ministry of Christ, God will do with this generation in the future. That strong delusion will lock them in to the rebellion that they have chosen. But Paul comforts the Thessalonians by saying in verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. They, they had responded. They were chosen. To this he called you through, the, through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught you by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He encourages them to stand fast. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, verse 16, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul comforts them and lets them know, listen, you've chosen the Lord, but he has chosen you. It's a great mystery to us as to how this works. Free choice of man coinciding with the sovereign will of the Lord. But it's only a mystery to us. It's no mystery to God. He is smart enough for these things. And so Paul comforts them and prays for them that they would be established in every good work and word. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.